welcome to another episode of the Bridging Theology Podcast, which connects scholarship to Christian life. I'm Kevin Hill. And I'm Ryan Reed. We are members of the Bridging Theology co-hosting team, along with Drs. Bess Stovell, Candace Smith, Claudia Herrera-Montero, and John Stovell. Today, we are very pleased to have with us Anna Gissing. Anna Mosley Gissing is Senior Acquisitions Editor at Baker Academic. She previously served as an editor at IVP Academic, Associate Director at Associate Director of Women in the Academy and Professions, and as editor of The Well. She also has a decade of ministry experience in local churches and parachurch organizations, and is an elder in the Presbyterian Church. Anna holds a master's in New Testament from Gordon-Conwell, a master's in theological studies from Beeson Divinity School, and a bachelor's degree from the University of North Carolina. This conversation today, we'll have, uh, we're going to have three parts to it, three movements. Um, we'll begin by discussing Anna's um, work, um, specifically in publishing. Uh, then we'll explore how this work um, of publishing connects to the Christian life and to the church. Um, and lastly, we're going to talk about marginalia, just some fun questions um, to help us uh, get to know Anna as a whole person. And um, sometimes, you know, marginalia can seem uh, ancillary, unrelated to scholarship, but we really believe that we're whole people. And so we want to um, bring that forward today. So we're excited about that too. Um, Anna, welcome to the Bridging Theology podcast. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Glad to be here. So Anna, we just want to begin by asking you, could you share with us something that most people wouldn't know about you? I was thinking about this. I think something most people wouldn't know is that I've moved around quite a bit. I uh, think I've moved 20 times and lived in seven cities and five states. And that's all in the United States. Uh, so I haven't, besides studying abroad, I haven't lived outside the United States, but several different regions uh, of the country, which has been a lot of fun. Wow. So have you, you said several different regions. Have you been in, you know, the West and the East or what kinds of regions have you lived in? Well, um, I grew up in the South and then I lived in the Northeast and now I'm in the Midwest. I have not been in the uh, far West, West coast, uh, but a bunch of other places. So, and I'm moving Westward and Northward as the years go by. So we'll see. So you'll end up in Alaska in due time. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Eventually, eventually. Yeah. 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 What, Anna, (laughs) what's, what led to all these different moves? Like what? What's the reason for that? Um, Mostly work. We moved around um, to a couple of different cities when we were in campus ministry. Then we moved to another state for my husband's, um, who was a pastor at a church. So we moved several states away. And then we moved to where we currently live in Illinois for my work. So lots of different job changes over the years uh, along the way. New, new states to, to learn about and to enjoy. Um, we will now uh, transition to some questions about uh, your work, Anna, and uh, um, your vocation. So we'd love to hear about that. Yeah. So Anna, you've already told us a little bit about the geographical journey that you've been on, but could you tell us a little bit more about the the vocational or the research or the personal journey that has led you to where you are today as a senior acquisitions editor at Baker Academic. And I understand you're also starting a PhD in New Testament. 
Yeah. So my journey into publishing and into a PhD program has been a bit circuitous. This is the way of many people in publishing. There are quite a few editors I know who also have stories of roundabout entrances into the publishing world. That's been the case with me. Um, I was in campus ministry, uh, working with graduate students and faculty for, for many years. And then um, I started teaching on the side theological research and writing for entering seminary students. And um, I think there was really um, the first time I got a sense that editing might be something that was um, the thing for me. I really enjoyed working directly with students on papers along the way, advocating for them and for their readers. Then I started freelance editing for a curriculum company and then actually moved into my campus ministry into this ministry for women in the academy and professions which included an online magazine. So then I started recruiting writers and editing that. Um, So all of those threads kind of um, pulled together for me. I recognized that editing was something that enabled me to use a lot of the strengths that I had and passions and interests. Um, And it was really satisfying. So um, I, I didn't really think of it as, a vocational shift. I just sort of developed along the way and ended up doing more and more editing. And then when a full-time book editorial position opened at IVP, I decided to give that a shot. Um, I started in trade book editing, uh, but very quickly within eight months, I think, had moved into academic book editing. That was a better fit for me, for my background and my instincts. Um, And it is a really fun job. Um, there's a lot of things to love about it, but I think my two favorite things are developing relationships with scholars and really helping them uh, work on their book ideas and get their messages out to the world. And I I get to read <laughs> and, you know, for my job, I get to learn new things all the time. Um, so there's a lot to to got a lot going for it. And so I was at IVP. Now I'm at Baker. Um, I think Baker has allowed me to specialize a little bit more on um, a smaller part of the publishing process. Um, But that's kind of how I got there. And then the journey to the PhD is much longer and we would run out of time for me to say the whole thing. But um, I have thought about getting a PhD off and on for many years, and I heard all those warnings about not doing it. If you can think about anything else that you might do, I took those seriously. Um, and now that my kids are older and I have space opening up in my life, um, our whole family felt like now is the time to take this next step um, and to go ahead and get the degree so that I can participate in the academy in ways that I can't currently participate. So it's, again, I don't see that as a real shift. I, I'm planning to continue to edit, but um, I'm just adding on some of my own research and writing. So that's great. Yeah. So Anna, I, I can't picture what it, I, I have ideas. I, I don't know. You probably get, I've imagined when you tell people what you do, people have ideas about what they do. Um, I'm even thinking about that meme that's, have you ever seen like what, 
my parents think I do, what I, you know, what I think I do, but what does an editor do? Like what's a typical day? Uh, I imagine there's some variability there, but what does a typical day look like for you? Yeah, I do think you're right that there are a lot of misunderstandings about what editors do because that word editor is used in a lot of different ways. Um, and different, even within the same publisher, we have all different types of job titles that have editor in them. So I work on the front end of the publishing process. So I start the conversation Mm -hmm. with authors or potential authors about book ideas. And then I hand off the manuscript once it's revised to a different editor. So I I really work on the front end. Mm -hmm. I don't exactly have a typical day. It's not, I don't exactly have a typical day. I have a lot of variety Mm -hmm. more than than maybe most people in their jobs, but I typically spend time reading um, drafts of chapters that people are sending me of their works in progress, offering suggestions, um, reviewing book proposals, and then meeting with my colleagues to talk through (laughs) um, book proposals, lots and lots of email. (laughs) And these days, lots and lots of Zoom calls with authors. Mm -hmm. You know, I used to, really um, only talk to authors at conferences in person. But in the COVID era, I spend a lot of time on Zoom calls. And the good news is that you don't have to wait to be in person mm-hmm. to have those conversations. Everyone's so used to to talking now that um, you don't have to just do email or conferences. So, yeah. If the relational aspect, as you said, is one of the things that you really enjoy, I imagine that Zoom now has has helped to improve that, like you're getting to have more relationship building. And I imagine that it also leads to probably a, a better process for authors. I know I very much would like to be able to do a Zoom call with an editor versus just a really long email back and forth. Yeah, so um, I think part of the role of acquisitions editors is it's a little bit like pastoral <laughs> care. You have different authors who need different things, right? And some authors really do not want to have a conversation mm-hmm. with you. Like, let's just do email and that's fine. Mm-hmm. And others would really like to talk and be a lot more collaborative, um, talk regularly throughout the drafting process. And I think that the tools that we currently have have really enabled that. Um, I do agree with you, though, that it's really nice to get to know uh, the authors that you're working with and for authors to get to know their editor. It helps when you're reading emails. <laughs> if you know mm-hmm. the person a little bit, you can kind of read into the tone right. a little bit easier. Uh, and um, yeah, I think it, I think it's an advantage if you can spend that time um, building that relationship. And, and for long-term too, I mean, publishing, it is about one book at a time, but many authors then think, okay, I've got another project I, I really enjoyed mm-hmm. working with and got to know Anna or, or somebody else. And I'm going, that'll be my first choice if I can work with her and Baker or, or wherever she's at again. Um, right. Especially in academic publishing yes. is certainly um, an investment in a scholar for a career. Um, and so you definitely want uh, authors to have positive quality experiences with everybody in your team so that they will want to come back and share their, their good experiences with their friends. Um, yes, it is not really as much about this one project as 
uh, this person, mm -hmm. I, I think. So. so now that you're doing a PhD and you've already done years and years of education mm -hmm. and you've been editing, how do you avoid, this isn't, this isn't our list of questions, by the way, but I just got to ask it because I'm, I'm kind of asking this of myself recently. How do you avoid like burnout or, or feeling almost like I've been overwhelmed with the amount of different perspectives and issues that are out there and opinions on different matters? That's a good question. Um, I think it's helpful to recognize that you do not have to know what you think about every single mm. topic. Um, just as you might think about how you engage with social media, you don't have to make a statement about every single thing. Not everything is yours to comment on. I think um, as an editor, uh, part of my job is to help authors communicate what they're trying to argue well, so that they're not gaps or, you know, they haven't considered other scholarship or whatever, but I don't have to agree with what they're saying or really come down and make a decision on everything that I'm considering. So I, I, I think that's helpful to avoid some of that overwhelm um, is that you really want a, a book to come out that serves readers, that moves a conversation forward. Mm -hmm. And that's fair to their, the author's critics um, and argues well. Um, but your job isn't to make sure that they end up uh, articulating something that you agree with. So uh, that's helped. That's helped me. I think. I also heard something recently that was helpful. Um, oh, somebody recently posted: "Don't read anything that I published before 2016 because <laughs> they've changed my mind." And I think we just have to recognize that even when we have strong convictions. As we grow and develop, we might change our mind about certain things. So we, it's. I think it's fair to say here are the main views. At, at the minute, I think this is the strongest one. Um, but you know, ten years from now, when we have other, when I've lived longer, um, and I've considered more, I may change my mind. So of course, there's some things we're not going to go changing our minds about. I'm not saying everything is up for grabs, but. It is hard to keep up with every hot topic in scholarship. It's impossible, actually. Yeah. Um, even within your discipline or your subspecialty, there are too many conversations going on for you to keep up with all the literature and therefore have an informed opinion about everything. I think that's got to be okay. Some of our listeners are students and probably feeling like, oh my gosh, I'm just getting into these survey classes and there are so many different perspectives and if you are a student listening to this, remember that it's okay to not have the answer right now. Give yourself some grace. So the next question I have actually comes from an audience member. This is, I think, the first time on the show we've had a question submitted by somebody in the audience. Anna, how do you see publishers and publishing remaining relevant in the digital age, where more people are seeking guidance and learning from apps on their phone or maybe social media rather than learning from heavy traditional books? Yeah, I don't think we necessarily have to choose uh, either apps on the phone or books. And I'm going to say a little bit more about that. I think for one thing, um, Baker publishes ebooks and uh, books on the Logos platform. So 
in a very real sense, you can read Baker's books on an app on your phone. Um, but more broadly, when ebooks first came out, there was quite a bit of panic in the publishing industry about the way of print books and what was going to happen. Will the publishing industry survive? And um, we found that there are just uh, quite a few people who really love reading print books. And even as more and more people own ebook readers of various types, and some people read both, a lot of people I think read mm-hmm. both. Um, I do. Uh, there's something about a print book that I think has been uh, resilient to all of these developments. So I, I think there's less of a concern that print books are going away. But I do see uh, attention spans shrinking mm-hmm. in light of all of these digital platforms. Distraction is growing. Uh, we have a harder time with long form uh, writing. And so we as publishers have to keep that in mind as we think about books that we're going to um, publish and authors have to keep that in mind as they write for readers who might be struggling with these shorter attention spans. But that doesn't mean we give up on the ideas or the print books. It just means we have to consider our audience and how the audience might be changing. Um, And I also think, especially when it comes to social media, sometimes you can be introduced to ideas from books on social media, because you've got the authors talking about them in threads, interacting with other scholars. A lot of times I hear about scholars or ideas or conversations on Twitter uh, before I've read the books. And so you can point from social media to the long form versions, which is which is a newer development that I think actually really helps scholarship. Um, if you can get some, build some excitement on social media, um, for scholarly publishing, then you can draw in readers in a way that they might not find if you just had to look in the library for the book. So, yeah, I mean, obviously, as, as podcasters, we we kind of feel that way too. There's so many wonderful books and authors that I've discovered through listening to various podcasts. I'm interested, Anna, in the um, social media piece. I do you. Does that mean just shorter books? Kind of is that the way the publishing industry is thinking about that? Or I don't know if you're able to say. Or I think there's a lot of think- different ways you can think about um, books for readers with shorter attention spans or more distraction. I mean, there are even with a long book. Let's say the length of the total book is the same. Um, there are ways that you can write that will help people hmm. along. Shorter chapters, so you might have bite-sized chunks, more of them. If Even if you have the same length chapters, you want to make sure that you make use of your subheads and you want to make sure that you're, you're using signposting, reminding your readers where you've just been and where you're headed using good transition statements. Some of this is just mm-hmm. good writing, mm-hmm. but it's especially important if you have readers that aren't used to reading big mm-hmm. chunks of material at once. Remind them where they've been and where um, they're going as you write. And um, I think that'll be easier for, for people who who are trying to, to get through a longer piece. It's a little sad to me that, I, I don't know, I'm like going to delete my apps, I guess, after this conversation. I don't want to, you know, I just, I, I feel I don't want to lose my attention span. But yeah, but I, I think there are things to, like you're saying, that can be done to confront that in books. So yeah. 
I do think, I mean, so there's, there's a lot of benefits to social media. I have been trying to take a little break because it's been, it's been a lot lately, but um, I think there, we, there's a lot that we've gained, but we do want to make sure that we're valuing um, times in our lives that require more attention. We're not filling up every moment with the, fast-paced social media that's really distractible because I do think there there are stu- neuroscience studies about the changing brains and I've got teenagers so this is something I think about quite a lot <laughs> how to how to figure out how to uh, get them to read books <laughs> get off their devices and read books we were also interested, Anna, just as we explore your vocation. So this, this, um, like you said, it's a continuation of all that you've been doing, but um, it's kind of a new chapter of that beginning your PhD. Love to hear a little bit just about what you'll be working on, where you'll be working on it. You don't have to tell us the whole story, but just maybe even if you want to give us a little bit of an insight into how what led to this, that'd be great. So yeah, love to hear about your PhD. Yeah, so this is brand new. The podcast is <laughs> We're finding out here, up yeah, to yeah, speed yeah. Yeah. on this news. Um, I am starting a PhD in August at Wheaton College in New Testament, and I'll be studying under Dr. Amy Peeler. Um, I'm working on Paul's use of family metaphors for believers and looking at the context of family life in the first century what kinds of expectations and obligations would Mm. Paul's hearers have heard when they heard that language and how might that affect Paul's ecclesiology and ethics, this Mm. usage of these metaphors. So um, just at the very beginning, so I probably won't say more Mm -hmm. than that about the project in case it all changes, but I'm super excited to get started on that. It's, it's a question that I have thought a lot about over Mm. a lot of years and uh, the short-er version of how this is coming to pass right now is that a couple of years ago, um, I was in a vocational discernment process, um, considering a couple of opportunities, and one of them was uh, kind of moving into administration and leadership in publishing, mm-hmm. um, and another one was sticking with the kinds of publishing that I'm doing right now. So I really had to think about what seemed like the best fit for me in my stage of life with my current commitments and my passions. And I really wanted to use any space that I had to explore my own research. Um, So I, that was, um, I guess, almost two years ago. And so then once I came to that recognition with my husband, we, we thought, okay, well, let's take some steps. So, um, so over the last year or so I did application process, Mm -hmm. GRE, all that. Um, I wasn't sure if it would work out, but I just decided that I would take a step Mm -hmm. with, instead of just pondering forever. And I'm really glad that I did. So, um, if, if your listeners are out there and have been thinking about this for a long time, it doesn't hurt to try. Uh, that's, that's what I would say is it doesn't hurt to try and it's not too late. I realized at one point that I would regret, um, Hmm. not trying to go back if I, uh, you know, 
if I just decided I was, it was too late. So I'm glad that I um, didn't wait any longer. And I mean, I, like you said, there's, this is probably a whole nother podcast and you know, all the areas you think about go and how you got here, but I would be interested to know a little bit about what made you so interested in the familial language and in the new Testament and in Paul's writing. Um, (laughs) I mean, who knows why we ever get interested in all this stuff to begin with. So, so many years ago I was working for Lauren Winner. Um, she's a professor at Duke now at the time. Um, she wasn't, but I was working for her and she wrote an article about, um, that, part at the end of Matthew 12, where Jesus says, you know, who is my mother and brother Mm. and sisters, those who do the will of my father. Um, And it was related to churches canceling their worship services on Christmas. So um, she was saying, you know, we should be having Christmas services on Christmas because this is our real family. Okay. Um, And I got really interested in um, that pericope and then the parallel in Mark. And so then, and then I went back to school and did a bunch of work in there and started looking at the use of that sibling language. Um, so I've been kind of toying around with mm. these different angles of what does it mean to be spiritual family? Um, and how does that relate with our physical or biological family? And how might, um, w- yeah. what is the ideal? Mm-hmm. What is the, what does that look like? Um, so I've been thinking about that for a long time. And especially as I've moved around quite a lot, uh, I've always been pretty geographically distant from all of my extended mm. family. And so this concept of spiritual family has been essential for me um, as I have been living in places um, where I needed community um, and, you know, needed that village to help us survive. Mm-hmm. So um, I have shifted to Paul mostly because I um, spent several years working on the dictionary of Paul and his letters. That's just about to release. Uh, I was the project editor for that. And so I was felt like I was getting up to speed on Paul to a certain extent through working on that and um, decided that I would shift over and look at Paul a little bit more on this. So again, a winding journey. You might notice that (laughs) in all of these questions, (laughs) but, um, but I do think that's part of recognizing that we're whole people. There are all these things that influence our decisions, um, our circumstances, our family lives. It's not just that we're brains on sticks with these intellectual interests that aren't related to other things going on in our lives. I think you'll find lots of people have their dissertation topics were somehow related to something that was going on in their, mm. in their um, lives. That's how they got interested. So I don't know about you too, but. Oh, that's absolutely I, I the case. That story. Yeah. I, first of all, I think that's a fantastic topic and, you know, God willing at the end of uh, your studies, we'll have you on again to talk about how that went and topics do change, but that just right now, my wife is a children's pastor at a church and the idea of, a spiritual family is something that we don't hear very much about at all has so many implications for how we do ministry, how we do life. Um, I'm, I'm just going to think about that for my own growth. <laughs> That's right. Especially weeks. for, 
yeah, especially if you think about our children's ministers who should be able to really call on anybody in the church to minister to the children, right? I mean, and but we have trouble finding volunteers for children's ministries because we've decided we don't we don't all yeah. owe the children right. <laughs> uh, time. So yes, agreed. It, there are a lot of different applications to the this concept. So. Just one last question, Anna, on, on seeing about your vocation. Is there any books you're really excited about right now that have come out or are, are, are coming out? Yeah, there are a couple of books that I worked on that are coming out this summer that I think um, are pretty, I'm pretty excited about. One is The Augustine Way by Josh Chitreau and Mike Allen. And they are talking about looking at Augustine as a model for apologetics and bringing apologetics back into the church so that we have these connections with um, really pastors and people in churches living out their faith in their communities instead of apologetics that's mostly Hmm. about arguing about different intellectual issues. I think that one will be really helpful. Um, And then we have one coming out called The Doctrine of Good Works, Recovering a Neglected Protestant Teaching, which I think will be um, something that uh, I hope people will take advantage of and read. Tom McCall and Caleb um, Friedman and Matt Friedman. And they do a really good job of tracing some church history about the role of um, good works in a variety of different Protestant traditions that we may have lost today um, when we think that any kind of conversation about works is somehow anti-grace mm. or is works righteousness or isn't Protestant. They really push back about that um, and offer a nuanced view about how works work in mm. the Christian life and what that might look like in practical theology. So it, it includes biblical studies, systematic theology, and um, practical theology, a little bit of for everyone, yeah. no matter what your interest is. Those those two I would, I would recommend as uh, ones that are coming out very soon. Those both sound awesome. The Augustine one, I got to read that. Yeah, I'm going the opposite direction. The, the Tom McCall one sounds good to me. Well, that, we both were very interested. We're now going to move to the second part of the show, which focuses on connecting scholarship to the church and Christian life. The first question for this section is, do you believe that there's a perennial need for new books and studies on the Bible, theology, ministry, spirituality, etc.? And if so, why is this? I mean, why can't we just say it right the first time? You will not be surprised to hear that I do think (laughs) there is a continual need for new books as someone working in publishing. But um, even though that's easy for me to say, I'd say there are a couple of reasons why we always need new books. Um, One is we recognize that scholarship continues to develop. And so we need new books to communicate what those developments are for readers and for reference. And if we do believe that scholarly contributions are important, we'll need to have access to those in print. But more broadly, and this affects more books, um, as our times change, we need to communicate the same ideas Mm. for a new context. Mm. So resources for students, for example, they won't connect well if they're full of outdated examples or cultural references that no one understands. Language changes over time. uh, And new voices emerge as those who seem like they were made for our time Mm -hmm. and people want to hear what they have to say. And so we need to give them a chance to 
share even uh, their thoughts about the same old topics. Um, so there are a lot of reasons that we need new books all the time. Um, but I do think it's a fair question to ask if we need as many yeah. <laughs> new books as we have coming out. I struggle with that a little bit more. There are more books coming out each year now than there ever have been mm. before. So it's really hard for books to connect with readers and an audience because mm -hmm. there's just an overwhelming number of books being released. And with the, um, you know, buildings, bookstores uh, going the way, you know, yeah. sorry, with, with bookstores going mm -hmm. out of business and more and more books um, being discovered online, I think there are barriers to discoverability mm -hmm. of new books that makes successful publishing difficult. So yes, we always need new books. Um, but the, the number of books we have coming out right now, I think is especially challenging for, for authors and for readers to get connected with one another. Yeah. And honestly, I think part of that is a fault of the Academy too. We have that model of publish or perish, build up your CV. It must be in print for it to be valid. Um, and, and that opens up the floodgates, at least in terms of, there's a whole bunch written and it's written with the expectation of being published and authors find somewhere to publish it. And thank goodness there are respected publishing companies that do sort of vet um, for quality research and quality contributions because otherwise you just go on Amazon and search for any topic. You know, I, I work on Athanasius and there's random create space independent published works that, I mean, they they may be all right, but it's it's hasn't been vetted at the same level and with the same care. Just following up on that, Anna, um, I, I I wonder what you think about the connection between publishing and the Christian life is, and and so I think if I can even so it's a broad question, and even to make it even broader, what is the connection between the creation of books and the Christian life, and then the reading of books in the Christian life? Like how do, how do you think mm. these play into our process of discipleship? I think those are pretty connected. The creation of books is for the express purpose mm. of the reading of books. And I think so many people have had the experience of um, being enlightened or growing spiritually or gaining insight, being challenged mm -hmm. by books that they've read. Um, people, sometimes you talk about a book with someone else or in a group or you find out about a book from someone else. So they books can be um, the center of community. Books can build relationships. Mm. There are a lot of ways that books can mm. serve readers. And if you think about the authors of books, um, they can only personally give out their message, verbalize their message to a contained group. Um, I guess now they can do more of that on video, but Books can reach way more people than can fit in a classroom or a congregation or church. So I think books um, enlarge the ministry of an author. And that way, God can work through books to get messages out to readers who, especially those who might not have access to um, a lot of other uh, messages or communities. So um, I do definitely think there's a ministry of the written word and publishing helps connect that these messages mm. with readers. Um, so it's almost like a partnership or facilitating um, the, the ministry, yeah. these two parties um, with one another. That's cool. I, I think as Christians, like we, 
you know, we are people of the book, you know, right? So it's like, yeah, it's, you can, uh, it's, I, reading is a, is an important part of our um, faith, really, you know, and again, um, yeah, connecting with books and, 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 and the book, you know, so yeah, I can, I think it's important. So I'm really interested, Anna, in how your work has helped shape your spiritual life and your relationship with God. Yeah, I, I think in two main ways. Um, I've had the opportunity to get to know so many Christian scholars who are serious about their scholarship and serious about their faith. And I have found them mm. to be very inspiring and to actually spur me on in my faith. Mm. Um, and I get to read excellent yeah. books about theology and the Bible and Christian faith as part of my job. So um, sometimes those books are addressing questions that I have already. And sometimes they're addressing topics that I haven't really ever thought about. Mm. Um, but either way, it is is helpful for me to grow, to develop, um, to learn. And it's a great gig. That's cool. And, and one day to write your own book as well, yeah. perhaps. <laughs> yes, hopefully so. Yeah, we're looking forward to that. Yeah, so um, we're going to move to the last section now, Anna. We just, uh, like I said at the outset, we'd like to get to know you just as a whole person. So um, we call it marginalia. Um, so just some more fun questions. Hopefully the other ones were fun too, but um, about you as a person. Um, and yeah, you want to get us started, Kevin? Absolutely. The first one is, what is your favorite movie or TV show and why? So I have trouble with favorite questions, um, but especially with TV and movies, because I have a rare gift. I can watch something and then forget it. So I can just repeatedly watch things and enjoy them as if for the first time over and over. This is really a gift if you think about it. So I don't really have like an all-time favorite, but I do love um, detective and spy shows. Um, So we have just recently watched an Icelandic detective show called Trapped. I don't know if either one of you are familiar with it, but I have really loved it. It's, It's in... It's sub um, subtitles and complex storylines and beautiful scenery of Iceland. And then this lovable main character, this police chief, Andre, I think hmm. is how you say his name. So that's my latest, but we have watched a ton of kind of detective series and spy series over the years. Um, it's kind of, kind of an escape. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> do, do you like, uh, in terms of reading, do you like Agatha Christie? Uh, or any, any, any detective novels that you like, Anna? You know, I, uh, haven't read much Agatha Christie. I did read the Grantchester series after that became a Mm -hmm. PBS show. They, the, the books are really good. Um, and I've read some John le Carre and, uh, you know, some of that kind of stuff. So I I don't read as much fiction as I should, but, uh, but yeah, that's fun. I love that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, so maybe you've kind of gotten into it a little bit already, but uh, do you have uh, uh, other hobbies you like to do, Anna? Uh, things for fun? Um, well, I like getting together with friends for coffee or walks. And it is just finally spring here where I live. Might be the case with you too as well. So I'm enjoying uh, this beautiful weather in April, doing lots of walks. And I'm a, a sports mom, mm-hmm. so I love cheering for my kids uh, when they're doing their sports and 
Right now they're both running track for two different schools. So I spend a lot of time sitting in the bleachers at track meets. Good for them. Which is a lot of fun. Wow. That's great. Do they run short distances, long distances, both? My son runs long distance and my daughter short. She's just starting out. So we'll see where she ends up. That's cool. Awesome. If you could have coffee or tea or any other beverage of your choice with one famous person from history who's not in the Bible, who would it be and why? Yeah. So I don't like this question. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Tell us why. Um, I, so I'm really interested in social history, kind of what life was like for the Mm -hmm. average person someone who wasn't famous mm, or wealthy. Right. So I'm not sure I would choose somebody that was famous, but I would love to get coffee with um, just some woman in one of Paul's churches, not in the Bible, yeah. uh, just hear about her life, her story, um, what life in the first century might've been like. So I, I'm going to go with that. That would be so awesome. <laughs> yeah. Those voices we had somebody on recently and we asked this fellow, he does uh, patristics. Somebody asked, why um, Why is there so little on the mothers of the church? And he said, well, unfortunately, they're, they weren't given much of a voice. So we just don't have a lot of written material from them. And it's, again, these, these lost voices, or these lives that were extremely important and shaped their communities, but we don't know their names. So I love that answer. Good. I'm glad. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. I, I guess you'll get a, a tiny window into that in your research. I, I mean, it'll probably leave you wanting more questions too, right? Yeah, I hope so. I went um, on an archaeological dig um, with some of these questions. What was what was life like? But archaeology is one of those things where it takes a really long time to figure out, you know, what you're seeing, what you're learning, what you're finding. So. I I, had, I think I my expectations of what I would learn from one two-week dig was a little high. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> yeah. That's still a really cool experience, though. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and speaking of, I guess, travel, going somewhere, um, our last question, you can, Anna, you can critique this question as well, uh, but <laughs> feel free. But uh, we, we wondered, is there somewhere you'd like to go in the world, you know, the all expenses paid uh, question, but somewhere you've always wanted to go? Yes. Uh, I would really like to go to Greece. My husband and I uh, wanted to go to Greece for our honeymoon 20 years ago, but something was going on. It was a bit dicey politically, and we decided that that was not a good idea. And I have never been, so it's on my bucket list. I'd really like to go sometime. Well, Anna, it's been a real pleasure having you on the show today. I really enjoyed this conversation. I know our listeners will as well. So thank you again for joining us today. Yeah. And I'd like to thank you, the listener, uh, for joining us today. Uh, We hope you've enjoyed this conversation um, as we have. And uh, if you'd like to help us, please um, share our podcast with others and subscribe on your podcast player. Leave us a review. Thanks so much again, Anna, for joining us today.